Good day and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast coming to you from Melbourne, Australia. Broadcast from the studios of 3CR. Your only radio left. My name is Susanna Duffy. In this episode, I'd like to look again at the events in the ocean. I mean the waters off Greece and in the North Atlantic. It's really a tale of two ships, isn't it? I'll go into a roundup of strange but interesting news, including the Lost Pets section. Where is the Future Fund investing? And who bought all that Nazi memorabilia? And I would like to thank everyone, that's everyone, who supported this program, who supported 3CR over the past couple of weeks of our annual Radiothon. It's much appreciated, very, very much appreciated. And I thank you again. Wondering how to pay your donation to 3CR Radiothon? It's easy. You can pay online at 3cr.org.au or call us any weekday with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash or card. Or simply post your cheque or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. For those listeners who showed concern, Tito the cat is still missing in Bolivia. Yes, it's been a long time now, but hope springs eternal in the human breast. Best of luck to you, Tito, and I hope you can get home. And another lost creature... There's a llama running wild in Scotland. No one can catch him and no one knows who owns him. He's just somewhere on the loose in Aberdeenshire. It's more difficult to lose a llama than to lose a cat. But I just hope this fella finds his way back home too. Did you see the fresco that was just recently unveiled in Pompeii? How amazing. A beautiful looking thing but it's said to look somewhat like a pizza with pineapple now come on pineapples didn't reach Europe until the 15th century and Pompeii of course was destroyed by volcanic eruption in the year 79 that's a long time between pizzas I can't believe that even if pineapples were available, that anyone in Pompeii would put a slice on a pizza. How dreadful. Putting pineapple on a pizza has led to international disputes between world leaders and led to diplomatic interventions. Let's face it, pineapple on a pizza is an abomination. And some news for iPhone users. Apple is putting in a tweak that will keep its autocorrect feature from annoyingly correcting one of the most common expletives to ducking. 
you know, for those moments where you just want to type a ducking word, well, you'll be able to. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Let's have a quick chat about the Future Fund. Now you can find the Future Fund on their website, futurefund.gov.au, and where it says here, and I quote them, The Future Fund is Australia's sovereign wealth fund. Our purpose is to invest for the benefit of future generations of Australians. Established in 2006 to strengthen the Commonwealth's long-term financial position, today the Future Fund is the country's single largest financial asset. As a sovereign wealth fund, we manage money on behalf of the Australian Federal Government. We have a single client and a single purpose. Our single purpose is to invest for the benefit of future generations of Australians who are represented by our single client, the Australian Government. This clarity of mission enhances our focus on our investment objectives and unites us in our quest to achieve them. Mmm, sounds like commendable stuff. And I don't have an argument with the idea of a future fund. I mean, it's an excellent idea. And investment in the future, yes, indeed. That's my future and your future, the future of our children and of our grandchildren and so on. Because all this investment is in my name and yours, I would like to think that it's ethical investment. Keeping in mind that the Future Fund manages more than $200 billion of public sector funds. But where does it invest? This could come as quite a surprise for you. The chairperson of the Future Fund Board of Guardians is Peter Costello. Remember Peter Costello, the man who would be Prime Minister? Peter once confessed to being a bit of a gambling man, a bit of a punter. Nothing wrong with being a bit of a punter, having a couple of bob each way on the horse race. After all, Peter Costello was betting on being the Prime Minister for a long time under Tony Abbott. I don't begrudge Peter Costello having a bet. He can afford it. But I didn't imagine that under his stewardship, the Future Fund would have staked more than $280 million of taxpayers' funds on companies that extract wealth from the community and cause harm through gambling. The Future Fund's gambling investments include a $211 million stake in Aristocrat Leisure, the world's second largest poker machine manufacturer. Aristocrat's products aren't just poker machines. The company also develops gambling applications for mobile phones and casinos and sees its future in online gambling services. While Prime Minister Albanese has clamped down on gambling advertising, the Future Fund, our Future Fund, is looking at handsome returns from a company that has made huge profits from poker machines in clubs and pubs and is now working to be a world leader in online gambling. 
And there's more. The Future Fund's gambling holdings also include $67 million in the Endeavour Group, which is a spin-off from Woolworths, and that controls extensive hotel, liquor and poker machine interests. The Endeavour Group was charged 62 times last year by the Victorian gambling regulator for allowing patrons to gamble at its machines without the option to set maximum losses. The Futures Fund also invests in the casino operator, Star Entertainment, which copped a $100 million fine from the Queensland government last year, as well as the lotteries reseller Jumbo Interactive. Now, these are just a small part of the Future Fund's investments in Australian equities, but it does provide some interesting perspectives on where the fund thinks profit is best made. It's in gambling, mate. It doesn't matter if the country spirals down into a huge depression. There's always money to be made in grog and gambling. The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare estimates that Australians lose around $25 billion each year from legal gambling. It further reports that some 1.33 million Australians, that's just over 7% of the population, gamble at levels that are harmful. And these Australians are at risk of serious financial, family and relationship, as well as mental health consequences. And it's these consequences that underlie the current debate about banning gambling advertising altogether. But as far as Peter Costello's future fund is concerned, gambling is a sure bet. 3CR Wouldn't you like to know the names of the politicians who bought up Nazi memorabilia online? I suppose to add to their collection. Danielle Elizabeth Auctions just recently advertised a huge military sale, saying, get it before history is banned and erased. Charming. The auction house sold 240 items, including signed pictures of Hitler, Himmler and Rommel, a striped concentration camp cap, a Jewish winter overcoat with yellow star, picture albums of dead soldiers and prisoners of war, and personal photo albums of SS officers. The managing director of Danielle Elizabeth Auctions is named Dustin Sweeney. And when he was asked what kind of people buy Nazi memorabilia, he said, there are lots of politicians, but I can't divulge names, and I can't divulge how much they spend. Quite often we have buyers' agents who make purchases for people's collections where they don't want people out there screaming about it. It's legal. We aren't selling drugs to children. Basically what he's saying is don't get angry at us for auctioning signed photos of Hitler, Himmler and Rommel. I mean, it's your elected politicians who are buying them. Yes, I'd like to know who they are. I wonder if it's one of my politicians in my area, or maybe in one of yours. I can think of a few in federal politics that might just buy Nazi artefacts 
But I don't want to say that on air because, you know, there are such things as libel laws. 3CR The drama involving that little submersible which went missing in the North Atlantic was followed by millions worldwide. Tens of millions of people. It's inevitable, really, that such an event in which there was a race against time and the elements would attract the interest and concern of these tens of millions of people who were following it. We feel deeply and instinctively for those trapped in life-threatening conditions. There's no room for anyone to gloat over the death of a handful of billionaires. Their death doesn't make the world a better place. It's interesting, though, that they were going down to see the wreck of the Titanic. Strangely, there are certain painful historical ironies that come to mind. There are similarities played out on a miniature scale between the sinking of the original RMS Titanic and its present-day shadow, the Titan. There were prominent wealthy victims of the 1912 disaster too, they included John Jacob Astor IV, business magnate, and the richest individual aboard that doomed ship. Also the Pennsylvania Railroad executive, John Thayer. And as we now know, the 1912 sinking and enormous death toll were entirely avoidable. Various investigations have shown that the disaster of the Titanic was the combined product of corporate profit hunger, ill-conceived plans, countless errors and simple stupidity. As Eugene Debs said, had it not been for the pride and pomp, the greed and luxury that paraded the upper deck, the Titanic never would have gone to the bottom of the sea. And there seems reason to believe that the Ocean Gate's activities merit scrutiny. In 2018, the company's director of marine operations, David Lockridge, presented what's been described in the media as a scathing quality control report to senior management. His concern was the safety of the little vessel. He was fired after presenting that report. And we look at the rescue efforts. Famously, the Titanic carried only 20 lifeboats able in theory to accommodate 1,178 people, which was just a little over half of the people on board. Even if that little submersible had been located, efforts to save lives would have been hindered by the fact that virtually no rescuing capabilities presently exist, at least not in government hands. Astonishingly, that as the global market for extreme tourist adventures has emerged, submarine rescue is now a largely privatised endeavour. Most governments have little or nothing to offer missing mariners if they're trapped underwater. The rescue capabilities of USA has declined and declined dramatically. In 1960, the US Navy had nine dedicated submarine rescue ships and two fleet tugs fitted out for undersea rescue work. Today, that service lacks a single dedicated undersea rescue vessel. 
once again, America's vast military, security and anti-terror apparatus only proves capable of ending lives, not saving them. And there's a question of class here. There were 709 Titanic passengers in steerage class. That's third class. And it's estimated that 537 of them died. I don't know why those figures are hazy. Weren't some of those third class passengers counted? Well, it's a mystery to me. But as has been well documented, steerage passengers on board the Titanic were confined to their area in the lower decks by grilled gates, some of which were never unlocked as the ship filled with water. And now, 111 years later, class divisions have reached a more malignant stage. It's become a tale, in fact, of two vessels. The Titan, on the one hand, and the fishing boat that sank on June the 13th in the Mediterranean, killing hundreds of desperate refugees on the other. The non-stop media coverage of the North Atlantic episode is vastly different from the treatment devoted to the terrible tragedy off the Greek coast. There, the individuals, Pakistanis, Egyptians, Syrians, Afghanis and Palestinians died, for the most part, nameless, uncelebrated. It's unlikely that some of them will ever be identified. Another irony lies in the fact that two wealthy Pakistanis were passengers on the Titan, while hundreds of impoverished Pakistani men, women and children succumbed in the Mediterranean. Instead of facilitating rescue efforts, the various European governments are directly responsible for the conditions that led to this mass drowning. Officials lied about and covered up their role, and they slandered the dead and the injured. Large-scale death is now business as usual. The clear implication of the reporting was that the suffering refugees had brought their fate on themselves. You know, this is unspeakable official inhumanity. Saving the hundreds on board the fishing vessel near Greece, once it was clearly seen that they were in jeopardy, would have been so much easier than rescuing a vessel possibly resting on the ocean floor. So much easier for any government or naval force. And it's legitimate, really, to raise the question whether, given the homicidal record of European governments involved, the refugees' deaths may have been deliberately facilitated as a means of setting an example and intimidating others. Of course, this entire tragedy in the Mediterranean could have been avoided if the fleeing people had simply been allowed to move with dignity and without obstruction from one continent or country to another. Their mass flight was precipitated by the imperialist wars and other operations carried out by the Western powers. 
those very regimes who presided over their deaths at sea. Social inequality, neo-colonial war, the growth of authoritarianism and anti-immigrant hysteria. There's a world of meaning there in those sad circumstances of those two contrasting episodes, a tale of two vessels. At this very moment, hundreds of people are still missing while 81 bodies have been recovered. In the seas off Greece, most of them are children. I'll just take a moment to think about that. While we were looking at the events in the Atlantic Ocean, there was no interest shown and there hasn't been interest shown in the rise in sea surface temperatures. This year, it's a 300% rise since the last 30 years. Decreased oceanic ice sheet coverage is significantly diminishing the albedo effect. The albedo effect is the reflection of solar radiation off the ice surface. The more the ice sheet disappears, the more heat will enter the system. The more heat, the less ice, and so on. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to work that one out. However, the responses to the disappearance of the Arctic ice sheet have amazingly emphasized not the risk, but the emerging commercial opportunities. Shipping routes can be shortened, oh wow, and undersea gas fields can be opened. Both of these things, of course, will make the situation worse. This follows along the lines of being told that carefree plane travel is no longer available to all of us. I don't know what you call this irony. Or is it black humour? Whatever you like to call it, it's not a joke. 3CR And a good show coming up this July. Melbourne Symphony Orchestra at Hamer Hall. The show is called One Song, the music of Archie Roach. Be a good one to catch. It will be an evening of storytelling featuring acclaimed artists such as William Barton and Sally Dasty and as they say, many more. And I'll leave this episode with some music from Sally Dasty and Kutcher Edwards' Mother and Child Reunion. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the ride. See you next week. Same time, same place. Until then, it's cheerio and ciao from Left After Breakfast.
Because of a lifetime run 